The Pan American Highway runs from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska in the north to Ushuaia, Argentina in the south. It's a popular route for overlanders, but although the road runs the distance, there is one gap that has never been built, and that's the Darien Gap, a roadless jungle filled with wildlife and natives that use the rivers as their roads. Some people have tried to cut straight through the jungle to make their own path, but they always end up using riverboats because it either gets just too difficult or something goes wrong or they run out of time. And although there are a number of riders that have actually passed through the gap using that method, as far as we can tell, none have done it without putting their vehicle on a riverboat at some point to finish their adventure. That is except for an expedition by Lauren and Patty Upton. The Uptons did an all-land crossing of the Darien Gap by motorcycle and by Jeep, both records. Today we have the Upton story. It's raw adventure. It includes unsolved murder, four people driving off a cliff on a foggy, dark night, being held for ransom, and plenty of hardship. All that coming up. My name's Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicom. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Payne. Brian Phil. Helga Pedos. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Carl Parker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Bay. Jim Hart. Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters. CyclePump.com and Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com The Pan American Highway is a route of roads that runs between Prudhoe Bay in Alaska all the way down through North America, through Central America into South America, ending in Ushuaia in Argentina, down at the bottom of South America. Now, it's all road except for one small gap separating Panama and Colombia. It's a relatively short gap in the route. It's only about 100 miles long, which is about 160 kilometers, maybe 30 miles wide, which is about 50 kilometers. It's home to a number of native tribes, but mostly it's mountainous jungle and swamp with a a bunch of rivers that are really the roads for those that live in what's called the Darien Gap. Now, we've talked about the Darien before on the show. We've talked to people who have found ways around it. Most overlanders take a boat or a plane to jump the gap, but the ones that are after some, I don't know, real adventure, I guess you could say, they try to find ways to get through the Darien. But it's one tough jungle to get through. There's no roads. It's jungle, it's steep hills, mud. And the Darien basically has two seasons. It's wet or it's dry. And the dry season doesn't last very long. And apparently the dry season is the only time you can possibly even attempt going through or going over by land. 
Not to mention that it's considered by many to be a sort of a, a lawless area, rife with drug smugglers, human traffickers, and all the other things you can imagine that go in there. Now, as far as we can tell, there have only been two overland expeditions that have succeeded in doing the Darien Gap, the entire Darien Gap, by land, all by land. One by Jeep and the other by Rokon two-wheel drive motorcycle. Both expeditions were headed up by the same man, and that man is Lauren Upton. Today, this is the story of Lauren and his wife, Patty Upton. Those are hard questions already, see? Um, Patty Upton, where I'm from, is just about anywhere. Uh, I was born in New Jersey, but I was traveling before I was born. My mom and dad, dad was Marine Corps stationed in uh, the West Coast in California and was sent to Japan towards the end of the Korean War. And uh, mom was pregnant with me, so her mom flew out and grabbed her out of California and took her back home to New Jersey. So that's why I say I've always been traveling since I was born, before I was born. Um, dad was again, military. We moved bags packed every few years. Okay. Where are we going? Where are we going? Get the globe. Let's go. Got to see. So traveling's always been in my blood and in my brain. Uh, right now I take care of three homes. They're vacation homes, all owned by the same family, uh, in just outside the little town of Salmon, Idaho, up at a lake. They're, they're usually summer homes, but he the owner comes up sometimes in the fall for steelhead fishing or, or hunting or something. But um, we just kind of maintain them, make sure they're up and running and ready for him and his families when he when he gets them up here. Patty, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, thank you. Now, you guys have, you and your husband, Lauren, who we haven't introduced here. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Lauren. Um, Lauren is currently 85 years old. Um, he's a former Marine. He has been wanting to travel and traveled since he was a young kid. He's always said since he was seven years old, he knew what he wanted to do. Very few people know what they want to do when they're seven years old, but he knew he wanted to be an adventurer and go out there and seek. And uh, that's what he's kind of strived for. He was heavy construction, so he made his money working on bridges, freeway overpasses, roads, box culverts, that sort of thing here in the Western U.S., and whenever he got enough money saved, he'd pack it in and go traveling. Traveling or, or was it all adventure stuff? Because, I mean, we're going to talk about some pretty wild well, adventures. Yeah. It started out pretty adventurous. Um, his first probably major one was he was attempting to go from horseback from Death Valley to Mount Aconcagua in South America. Uh, that didn't work. They got into Mexico. He got really sick with dysentery. Lost considerable amount of weight. He's six four. Usually, in his younger years, he was a good, a good two hundred and probably thirty five forty pounds. But muscle. When he got back to the states, he was under two hundred pounds. So he oh. looked like a skeleton. This was back in the late fifties. Um, then he and his son went on what they called tote goats, which I think probably resemble. Uh, more or less more like a, a motor scooter, but with a small implement type tire, almost like the Rokon, not two wheel drive. Uh, his son was seven, eight years old, and they were going from California to Mexico uh, one summer on these tote goats. And they were gone, I think he said, 
I don't know, three, three and a half months, three months maybe. And in that three months, he says his son probably aged seven Seven years, you know, he left when he was seven. He came back when he was 14 because of the experiences that he gained in that three-month time. And let's see, I think the next one would have been the first trip with the uh, Ford into the Darien Gap. He got down to Panama, didn't even realize there was Darien Gap there, just got to Panama and found out about it. And people stopped him and said, you know, because I lived in the canal zone at the time. And uh, you you see something like this big F-250 with dual rear wheels and bright red paint job and a winch and a bumper on it that'll just about take it anywhere. You know, and California license plates, you always, you know, flag them down and say, what the hell are you thinking? You can't go any further. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, he said, I'm going. So he, we, my ex-husband and I arranged uh, contacts for him for, for people that would have more information about the area, that sort of thing. And then it's when he was on that trip, um, he had a, the truck had a breakdown and he was out for parts. And the one volunteer man he had with him was shot and killed. Nobody knows exactly what happened. The Panamanian police, the Guardia Nacional, said that he was found outside the uh, right-hand side of the truck. Looked like he'd been just loading his pipe. He had his Bible, and there was a bullet wound behind his right ear. So nothing was stolen. Nothing was missing from the truck. Nobody knows what actually happened. Uh, the, a lot of the natives down there are very careless with their firearms, and it could very well have been an accident. And, you know, no native's going to say, well, gee, I'm sorry I did it, you know. Mm -hmm. So nobody really knows what happened to him. And uh, Lauren started again. This time he was a little bit more focused. Well, hang on. Before you before you go any further, I'm, I'm interested in, in that expedition there you were talking mm -hmm. about, the, the F-250. He just shows up in Panama and says, what, I'm, I'm heading south? And how do you meet yep. him? Where, where, do you, where do you guys connect? Well, my ex-husband flagged him down and said, you know, basically, what the hell are you doing and where are you going? And, uh, um... Brought him home for dinner. <laughs> and uh, that was basically well, the first time I'd met him. That was probably, yeah, late 75, because he started the trip into the gap itself in early 76. The Daring Gap is located between Panama and Colombia, um, mostly in Panama. It's a province of Panama. And Panama has two seasons. They're either wet or dry. The only time you want to try to travel through this particular area is the dry season, which and I talked to a hydrologist that worked for the Canal Zone government at the time, and he said dry season begins two weeks after the last rain. That's as far as they can pinpoint it with science. Wow. <laughs> so hang on, that's, a, that's a, that is a pretty tough one because how do you know it's and the he, last rain? <laughs> and they went to college for that. <laughs> um, so it's normally sometimes. Pardon me. It's normally sometime in November, and it lasts usually through February, early March. Yeah, and give or take. And there's times when that, you know, that could be completely off. But on a whole, that's the dry season. That's the only time to try to go through this particular area. The rivers are lower, easier to cross. There's a lot less mud, um, and it's just a, a just a better time to get in that area, climate wise. Otherwise, it's I mean, it's muggy anyway. You're still dealing with 100% humidity most of the time because of the it is the tropics. But at least it's it's not raining on you constantly. Well, well now while you're talking about the Darien Gap, describe that a little bit more: the jungle, the people, the rivers. Um, 
well, it's got two, well, actually, th- I'll say three major groups of people that inhabit the junk, the Darien Gap. And I'm going by what we call them. Their names have gone more politically correct, as I understand it. But we had the Choco, which are now called the Embara, the Kuna, which are now called the Guna Yala, I think. And then there were the Blacks. And the Blacks were descendants from uh, slaves, that sort of thing. The Blacks were more of the businessmen in the in the area. They lived in more of the, the larger towns and villages, owned the stores, that sort of thing. They had more of the commerce. They were, you know, the the the, the Kunas and the Choco would bring their plantanos and, and whatever to the Blacks to sell at their stores and then purchase what they needed from the stores that the, run by the Blacks. I think a lot of um, people see this as, as a wilderness, just a huge wilderness, but you're talking about towns and things like that. Oh, villages, towns, yeah, villages, um, no roads. The Pan American Highway ends at the town of Yavisa in Panama, which is about 170 miles outside Panama City. And people, and this is actually in the eastern part of Panama. This is something people have trouble with. They think the canal runs east and west. It doesn't. It runs north and south. Panama is shaped like a giant S. So the Darien Gap is actually the eastern, in the eastern province of Panama, not the southern. Mm. Um, so it is roadless. Uh, there are some logging roads that are now in. When I say now, the last time I was down there, well, the Rocon is the last time I was in the area where there were logging roads. I've been down there. Last time was 1999. I went down with my daughter for her high school graduation. I said, hey, come see what I do and <laughs> <laughs> took her into the gap. So um, it, virtually roadless. Uh, the rivers are the roads. So when you go down there and you're seeking to take a vehicle or a motorcycle through by land, which was our goal, was to remain entirely on land, cross rivers, but never travel up or down them. The natives look at you and say, well, you can't get to that village from here without going on the river. Lauren would say, no, you can. You just have to search out a trail. And we'd hire natives and they'd search a trail and find a trail from Boca de Coupe to Basal or whatever. Uh, even though they had never gone by foot before, they always got on the river and, you know, went down river and up river and got to the village. The easiest that way. way, of course. Um, correct. The quickest, easiest way to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been um, talk of a highway through there since the early 60s, if not before. I'm not too sure. I, I got to Panama in mid-60s and there was, of course, talk of the projected Pan-American highway continuing through the gap. And it is not a problem with the terrain through the gap to get a highway through there. I mean, you, like my husband's highway construction, bridge construction, you can virtually put it anywhere you want. That's not the problem. But the political problems that arise between two countries that, of course, you go back to, what, early 1900s or before, Colombia owned Panama. Panama was part of Colombia. Um, you go into the history, there's always been a little rival, rivalry between the two countries. Of course, there's... Uh, hoof and mouth disease that is in South America that has been eradicated in North America and Central America. So there is that possibility of opening a highway through there that would cause problems with that. Um, There's the drug trafficking now, the human trafficking that goes on through there. Um, So it's it's a pretty complex little area when you get right down to it. There's a lot going on in a lot of spaces that is out of touch from a lot of people. 
let's jump back now to the Ford F-250 with the dual rear wheels and the bright red paint job and the winch and the bumper <laughs> that comes in to Panama. Your husband befriends Lauren, brings him home for, for dinner. What's his plan? Does it, what does he tell you guys when you're sitting at the dinner table? Um, he says, I want to go through the Darien Gap. And, and, and Lauren's not the type of person that you t- say you can't do that. It's his, his model basically is, well, if it doesn't work, damn it, make it work. <laughs> So, so. so is he ornery? Like, does he argue the point or does he just no, s- no, s- just sits there very, with resolve? Yeah, that's it. Just very, you know, he's made up his mind that this is what he wants to do. Therefore, this is what I'll do. Um, and not that he's out hurting anybody. He's paying for it himself. It's, you know, his money that's going into this. He's got people that he's asked, you know, volunteers to go with to help run the winch or, you know, maintain camp or workmen on the trail to make sure that the trails being cleared, that sort of thing. And uh, um, and he was doing fine for a while until he actually broke an entire axle housing. For those of you that know that normally axle shafts break, but not axle housings. Mm. And this was the second one that he had broken. And he first one he had broken in Mexico, he thought maybe Mr. Ford had built a bad truck. Well, then when he broke it again down in the dairy, he realized that maybe it wasn't Ford, maybe it was him. He had a truck that was way overloaded. He says every part he carried never broke and everything that broke he never had a replacement for. That seems to be a, so. a, a common <laughs> mantra. Wait, wait, before we go any further with this, I want to jump back. And What were you doing in Panama City at that point? I worked for the uh, USA Girl Scouts in the Canal Zone. I was office manager, secretary, camp director, depending on the time of day or day of the week or month of the year as to what job I was doing. Now, um, now you were there because you went to school there. Well, yeah, my dad was transferred down there. Um, after he got out of the military, he went to work for the um, DIA. No, CIA. Yes, DIA. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Defense Intelligence Agency. I always got to start with one uh. and go backwards. And uh, he was down there. And worked as a civilian, no longer in the military. And uh, we were stationed at a, a Navy base there and had housing. And I did my last two years of high school. It was one of those hard things that I look back on now. Kids can, you know, I don't know how many applications you've ever filled out for a job application. They want to know your, where you've gone to school. Well, normally they give you two lines. <laughs> no, 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 no. I need half a page. Sorry. <laughs> So, so here you are in Panama, you're, you're working and living in, in Panama city. Lauren comes down with his F-250 to go through the Darien Gap. You guys have a, have a, a brief connection there. W- what does he strike you as? What, what do you think? How did you see him at that point? Oh, very determined, very sure-minded, strong-willed. Um, I was, you know, very happy where I was. He was looking for volunteers to go with him. And I was helping with some correspondence with him. He'd come over and have dinner. Uh, We'd do some correspondence, write letters, whatever. And he was one of those people that when someone said, oh, I want to go, I want to go, then he expected you to be at the takeout point at seven o'clock in the morning. They were leaving because (laughs) he was leaving and you volunteered and you said you're going. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I kind of, I learned a few things from him about that because he found out that most people that volunteer don't follow through. And even those that volunteered 
once they got down there in the dairy and they realized that, because at that time, people would hike, people, gringos, would hike through there quite often. And when I say hike, they'd go by, they'd hike a portion of the distance, go by boat a big portion of distance. And then there is a portion you have to hike because there is no water connection between Panama and Colombia across the, the ridge of mountains that forms the border there. So you do have about an 18 mile hike. You have to do overland to, to, to get to another river system and then you can go out by boat. Um, but you know, once these people get down there and they find out, okay, there is some work involved. There's a little bit of mud, maybe. Um, meals are not five star. So things get a little bit rough and they think, well, this isn't what I signed up for, you know, goodbye. Mm-hmm. And Larry, the gentleman that was was killed, he's the one that stuck it out. He was a former army medic, I believe. And I don't know the full story, but he had a prosthetic foot. That was one reason when the Guardia contacted Lauren while he was waiting for these parts at a construction camp. They, when he, they described the gringo that was shot, they said the prosthetic foot. Because when he first heard a gringo was shot, the, the area that they gave him, the, the, the rumor mill, was nowhere near where the Ford was. So he said, well, it wasn't Larry. Well, a few hours later, when the Guardia showed up looking for Lauren, they gave a description. He said, yes, that was Larry. So it was the prosthetic foot that they mentioned that, that Lauren then knew that it was Larry that had been shot and killed. And, and it never came out what happened. That remains a mystery. It remains a mystery. I mean, rumors said that they did find a native that confessed or they convicted of the crime or whatever. I, I don't really know. Um, they did have Lauren under, quote, suspicion for, I don't know, several days, taking him one, from one point to another for questioning and that sort of thing. Oh, oh but, thinking he may, he may have shot Larry and then took right. off to the construction camp. But everyone at the construction camp basically said, no, he's been here for three days or four days or whatever it was. And they had one logbook in the in the truck and everyone would make daily entries in the logbook that was on the expedition. You know, it was not like you had individual journals. Everybody just kept one. And Lauren had made a journal entry on and I forgive me, I don't have notes in front of me on this, but on such and such a day, he was hiking back to the construction camp to wait for the supplies to come in. And then he said, leaving out now. And that was his last journal entry. And then there were two or three days where Larry had made journal entries. Uh. And so they knew he, Lauren hadn't been back in camp because there were no journal entries for several days by him. So it's that journal that exonerated Lauren. Otherwise, right. things could have turned Which, out different. Which, of course, now is long gone and missing because the only thing, and this is very cool to say, the only things that turned up missing at the very end when Lauren was able to get the truck back or to move the truck was things that were confiscated by the Guardia Nacional. Um, because when he, Lauren was first questioned, he said, well, what about all my tools? And the guy said, yeah, they're in ammo boxes, blah, 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 described them. Yeah, no problem. The, and they had the logbook because they used that as part of their evidence of where Lauren was. And they described some other things and, and oh, a, a, a sock full of coins that Lauren had collected from the various countries in Central America. He'd tie a knot and then load more coins in the sock and tie a knot. And this were going to be for his uh, little nieces back in the States. All this was described to him by the Guardia. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all here. It's all in storage. It's all safe. Well, when they gave it back to him, some of the tools were missing, the sock of coins was missing, the journals were missing. Um, I don't know what else, but there was quite a few things that he never got back. 
Well, we're, we're, yeah. we must be missing a part of the story. So at, at some point he abandons the vehicle. Well, what happened? We got as far as he's waiting um, okay. and Larry gets killed. Right. He um, he had gone and waited at a construction camp, uh, American construction camp. And they said, oh, we can order the parts, rear axle housing, because we use the same vehicle as you do. So they ordered the parts to be shipped into them. Lauren picked up the entire axle housing and went back, eventually went back out to the, well, you take that back, let me back up. Um, he found out that Larry had been shot and killed. So they then said, you've got to come with us. And so the Guardia Nacional took him to, I believe, La Palma, which is the capital of the province of, of the Darien. And he was questioned there. Anyway, he was um, taken to Yavisa and they were going to lock him up. And he said, no, no, I'm not under arrest. You're not going to lock me up. And they said, okay. So they gave him a cot in the office and they were waiting for a, a lieutenant to come back from dinner or something like that. And he was questioned some more. And I think that's where he found out that they had all these, they, the Guardia, had gone in and had pulled all these loose things out because the truck was totally open when they found it. They, you know, it was just all open and exposed. So they, they, they must collected have done that when it. they went and found Larry dead. Right. That's when, when they, they found Larry. Really yeah. Mm-hmm. They, yeah. When they found Larry, they went in and confiscated all this stuff and locked it up. Now, now the truck is sitting where? Just in the middle of the jungle? Just about. Yeah. It was seven miles. That's what it was. Seven miles off a haul road. That's as far as they'd gotten off on a haul road oh, I see. Um, into the jungle. They had done a lot of winching and, and it was pretty, it was, had been a pretty rainy uh wet season and it was still raining off and on even though this was early January so he was having trouble with some mud and that's how the the axle housing broke uh, they were winching up out of a, a muddy patch I believe and um, they finally said okay you're free to go um, you can go back to the truck so Lauren went back to the truck they didn't get, they he said let me leave my stuff here because I'm not ready to take the truck out yet. So he went back to the truck and he had money hidden uh, in various places around the truck uh, that he knew where it was. And he kind of acted like he was, you know, inspecting the truck on the outside and looking here and looking there. And he could see that the hiding places were still secure and the money was still hidden on the truck. So he knew that it hadn't been searched that thoroughly. Um, got a change of clothes and he headed back to Panama City because he wanted to report the the death of Larry to the U.S. Embassy. And uh, so he went back to Panama City, reported the death to the U.S. Embassy, although they didn't seem too overly concerned. Um, and then went back down to the construction camp. By then the axle housing was in, got the axle housing, took it out to the, the Ford, replaced it. And then he had the, the, it's now, by now I should say this is now early, late February, early March, by the time all this has gone by. He wants to get the truck back out of the dairy and he knows he can't go any further. Um, so he started out, well, rains had started coming. Things were getting really rough for getting out. Uh, and it got to the point where the U.S. construction companies were shutting down business for the rainy season and they were getting their equipment out. And he made a deal with a driver of a Caterpillar who was towing a generator out. He says, look, you tow me, I'll tow your generator. So they made a train of the cat pulling Lauren's truck and... uh Lauren pulling the generator behind him. And that's how they got out the last several miles because it was such a muddy 
quagmire getting out. Wow, it's surprising that the the cat doesn't just rip the axles right off the truck. I mean, it's, well, it was going exactly. He was going so slow that he'd have to get. He could get out of the truck and walk by it and use a stick and keep the mud from building up and uh, clogging things so that he could st- continue to go. Correct. Yeah. That's incredible. So that's Scuttle's uh, attempt number one. Um, Correct. What's attempt number two? I, you know, I, I have to say, Patty, like for a lot of people that just the experience of the vehicle, getting it in, extracting it, having to be towed out. And then on top of that, the death of Larry. Right. I Larry that, was a a hard pill to swallow for him oh, because that, that would make most people just walk away and say, forget it. His his only consolation was, and he keeps, he, to this day, he'll tell himself that Larry was a full grown. He was 40 some years old. He'd seen places, he'd been places, he'd lived life. He was not some starry-eyed teenager who said, yeah, yeah, let me, let mm-hmm. me, let me go, take me. And then, you know, some young kid that ends up dead that hadn't had a chance to live. So he feels a little bit better that Larry went down there knowing, because everyone told him from day one, you're going to get yourselves in trouble, you're going to get shot and killed. This was always the stories going on. You know, that, that this is what it's like. And uh, so they went down there with their eyes open and he felt certain that, you know, Larry was well aware of the dangers involved. So it wasn't some, you know, kid looking at it as some romantic adventure that he was going to, you know, yeah. be superhuman at or something. You know, and, and I get that. And and I think that, yeah, I, I totally understand that. That's not really what I was, was looking at. I'm thinking more of for Lauren himself. I mean, you know, take that as a warning. You know what I mean? That's, that wasn't you, but that could have been you just as easy as it was Larry. Maybe you want to avoid this. Yeah. Well, I think he looked at it that it didn't appear to be an outright murder. It appeared, I think in his mind, he thinks it was an, an accident by the natives because a lot of the local natives would come in and spend time with Larry during the day. And, uh, so he just assumed that I think that in his mind it was just an accident. You know, they left camp. He, the guy threw his, you know, twenty two over his shoulder right. and went out of camp. And the tie wire holding it together gave loose and popped off around or something. Right. So yeah, it's it, it's hard. It is a hard pill for him still to to, to swallow because of that. Um, but it. It didn't stop him. It, 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 not that it made him any more, I wouldn't say it made him more determined. It just made him maybe, he's always learned from his mistakes. And he said, okay, something smaller, something lighter, something quicker than the big heavy Dodge. I keep wanting to say Dodge. Ford. Um, let's, so that's why he went with the Jeep. Uh, the second attempt was with a, a 1977 CJ7. Mm. And I can't imagine, uh, I mean, uh, coming from a background of, of lots of four-wheeling, I can't imagine wanting to take an F-250 when yeah. Jeeps are readily available. I mean, CJ-5 would have been the ideal tool for something like that. Right. And see that, and he was brought up around Jeeps. He knew that. But I think he didn't realize what the gap had in store. Now, he was probably thinking more of hauling equipment and things with him because the F-250 mm. is obviously far better at that than right. the Jeep. You're so limited with space, and especially yes. the CJ-5. I mean, a Jeep is made for two people in an ice chest to go away for a weekend. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's it's not made to to for extended periods of time. So that's one reason he went with the seven in the uh, CJ seven in seventy uh, seven. Gave him a little bit extra room to carry stuff. Mm-hmm. Now this Again. is attempt two. 
This is attempt two. Right. So he's got a CJ7. And so just to be be clear here, the CJ5 was a shorter version of the Jeep. It was very short. Correct. When you, shorter when you got wheelbase. In. Yeah. The, the shorter wheelbase. The door, you'd actually scoot your butt over over the hump in the door. Like it was that tight or, or the yeah. hump where the door closes. Whereas the CJ7 right. was more of a full door that you got into with a small Correct. jump seat in the back that uh, you could take out for loading gear in. Mm-hmm. And uh, he took off from the U.S., beelined it down to Panama. He he basically was, this. he was just saying, I'm going, this is it. I'm not stopping. We're just going to go. And he met a young Canadian, John Blake, who accompanied Lauren through the gap in 77 in the, in the CJ. He helped run the winch, you know, going through the gap, the driver's the only one in the vehicle. Uh, everyone else is walking and performing other duties. And at this point, uh, John was running the winch cable, run the winch out. You winch your way through the gap. Let's be, let's be honest. There's a little driving, but there's a whole lot of winching. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was, he was, he, he, he would run the winch cable for, for Lauren. And they um, made it through the gap in 49 days, traveled maybe eight to 10 miles via some rivers at the very end because the rains were coming and he was just done with it. He wanted out. And, uh, so it wasn't an all land crossing, which always kind of gnawed at him that it was so, not, okay, I shouldn't so, say always. Sorry, that, 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 so that was the point. It was supposed right. to be an all land, basically all winch right. drag crossing. And because right. he, he gave in at the end and did some water routes, he's not satisfied. Yeah, he, it was, it was, an, it was a, yeah, it was, but it became a mute point a few weeks later. Well, a few days later, I think it was less than a week or so later. Um, they were, John and he were in the, the Jeep and John was continuing continuing with him through South America. They were in the uh, Andes outside Quito and they picked up a couple of young hitchhikers, a Frenchman and a, both French, French gal and a Frenchman, I believe. I think he was French. Um, And they were traveling at night, which is something that should never do uh, in some of these foreign countries. And while in the Daring Gap, the windshield had been folded down on the on the Jeep, as in most of the older Jeeps. You could fold the windshield down flat, had a soft top, took the top off, folded it up, put it underneath the, the windshield, and then folded the windshield down over that. And that's how it went through the gap. Well, somehow in all that, the windshield wiper motor had been turned on and no one realized it. And of course, the windshield was folded flat and the wipers were now bound up and couldn't move. Didn't realize any of this. Folded everything up took off in the Ecuadorian Andes, foggy night, a little bit of mist. Lauren reaches out of the door to wipe the windshield off because the wipers aren't working. Because at this point you put the windshield, but he put the windshield back up. Yeah, windshield yeah, back the windshield up. Found the wipers right. are burnt out. And he puts his hand out to, to wipe the windshield off so he could see a little better. And of course he was paying attention to where his hand was on the windshield and he went over a 300 foot embankment. <sighs> this is and at night in the fog. At night. In the fog, in the Andean mountain, in the Andean mountains in Ecuador. Now there's four people in the jeep. Four people in the jeep, and he said the jeep probably went over end for end once, and he remembers the top being ripped off, and all he did was grab for brush and hang on, and he was sucked out of the jeep. And then he thinks the jeep went one more time end for end, and John was thrown clear, but the two hitchhikers that were in the back were probably in it for another two tumbles before they were thrown clear. Wow. And 
Lauren, when he grabbed the brush, he got a, a stick in his chin and he was bleeding quite a bit. But his main concern was the safety of everybody else. He found John. John kind of tweaked his back, um, found the young Frenchman down a little bit. He was OK. Well, when he came across the young French gal, she was unconscious. And I mean, he just lost it. He said, I can't have killed another person. This can't happen to me. You know, I, I, this this is impossible. Please don't be dead. What is he? What did What did he tell you he did at this point? When, when you say he lost it? Oh, he just. Well, he was just praying. I mean, he was just praying. He just didn't want because she was a young kid. I mean, innocent, young. These were just two teenagers out for a good time, and yeah. you know, he's in a kind of kindness of heart. He's going to pick them up and give them a ride, and he has caused this problem. You know, it's, you know, he, he takes all responsibility for it. Mm-hmm. It's his fault, and. He, after, you know, losing Larry, he says, I can't have lost another one. This can't happen. Please, God, you know, make her okay. And uh, Marie Claire was her na- is her name. And she was fine. She had a concussion. She was just unconscious. Um, the Jeep was a total loss. It was just a total tangled mess down at the bottom of this ravine. So that rather um, set things back and he decided, he kind of started working on this goal at this time that it was going to be take one American-made vehicle around the world on a north-south course all by land except for the South Atlantic. There's a land route from the furthest road north in North America to the furthest road south in South America. South Atlantic being the only natural water barrier, furthest road south in Africa to the furthest road north in Europe all by land. That was going to be it. Well, that's why the Darien Gap not being an all-land crossing kind of bothered him. Now he's lost the vehicle. So he has to start over. He always, he he's one of those people. He says was he, what he does. He does what he says. He said one American made vehicle, not a series of them. So he's, th- this is sort of developed. Uh, I mean, first is the Darien, and then I, I assume he's headed to, I don't know, Oswaya in South America. Mm-hmm. But during these two trips, that's where he sort of come up with the idea of making this around the world thing. And, and was it to get the Guinness record? Was that, was the Guinness record part of it? Or is that no, just sort of No, it a wasn't sub- at the time. It was just a romantic high adventure. That's mm-hmm. what he wanted. And in kind of in the vein of past explorers in that you don't necessarily know where you're going. You just know that you, here's point A and point B is somewhere down there because that's where I want to end is the furthest road. And sometimes we didn't know where the furthest road south was. It was one of those things we had to continually ask, is there a road further on? Is there a road further on? Mm-hmm. Same thing when we got to Gamvik or to Norway, uh, looking for the furthest, furthest road north there, we kept saying, okay, is there one further north? And is there an, I would stop at a police station and say, is there a road that goes further north than this one? You know, and that's, you know, that's where we're headed. It's it's quite a romantic, and you did use that word, romantic vision of adventure. I mean, it's like, it's almost pure in, in my mind because it's not fueled by external accolades or, or, or um, people backing him or something like that. It's it's an internal goal. I want to do this. This I, I want this. I want, I want to accomplish this for myself. I mean, that's, that's pretty neat. I'm glad you mentioned that because this is something that... Kind of twofold. You mentioned not seeing anything on the Rocon. Well, we are very difficult in selling ourselves. We, and and this is something that Lauren has always said, I wanted to do it. I didn't want, I mean, I don't know how people get the backing. You, well, We've read expeditions where people are fully backed before they pull out of the driveway. Yeah. 
and they've got satellite phones and electronic this. Of course, you have all that nowadays. None of that was really available back at this time. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we had a, a cassette player and a radio that worked a little bit if we were in the town. As far as that, we had no communications. We had a watch. We had a compass. And the compass died in Africa. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) it was one of those things that, you know, okay, we're here and we want to go there. What's the best way to get there from here? Um, So when he lost this Jeep in 77, he started planning another one because it was going to be one American-made vehicle, not a series of them. And he started over in 79 driving a brand new Jeep just off the showroom floor. He'd been in... um, Saudi Arabia doing a job for a construction, U.S. construction company over there. So he made some pretty good money, had a friend buy the Jeep here in the state. So when he flew back from Riyadh, it, the Jeep was ready for him to pick up, make some modifications, roll bar, new seats, winch, that sort of thing, and take off. And he called up John Blake, and John Blake said, yeah, I'll go. So John Blake came back down from Canada and joined Lauren on the trip. Um And that was the third attempt to go through the Darien Gap in 79. And that trip ended when there was a, uh, there's, there's discrepancies here. Well, we need to stop for just a minute. So far, Lauren and his crew have made two attempts to cross the Darien Gap on a full land crossing. One fails after Larry is murdered, tragically. The next trip is scuttled in South America after the Jeep crashes over a 300-foot precipice, almost killing the four people inside. And now Lauren has congealed a plan to take that American-made vehicle overland, except for the South Atlantic, around the world, top to bottom, and back to top. Now, of course, this means another crossing of the Darien Gap, but this time... This time it has to be all land. And in Lauren's mind, there's no compromise. So we're going to take just a quick break. And then when we come back, we've got more adventure than most could handle. And um, also we get a lot closer to the first all land crossing of the Darien Gap by motorcycle. Stay with us. Located in the Monashi Mountains of British Columbia, that's southern British Columbia, there's a place that riders like to stop at. It's called the Red Rock Garage. It's on Highway 33 in southern British Columbia. Uh, The Red Rock Garage is a small coffee shop, they say, with a motorcycle addiction. And as soon as you visit there, you will get it right off the bat. They are definitely addicted to motorcycles. The owner, Dan, um, a true motorcyclist riding an adventure motorcycle, probably just like you. Uh, They have everything there. They've got clean washrooms. They've got fuel, of course. They've even got a and b and a campground. So the next time you're looking for a destination, you're heading out, maybe you're going north-south, maybe you're going east-west, doesn't matter. Go out of your way to go to Beaverdale, British Columbia, Highway 33 in, in southern British Columbia. The Red Rock Garage sits there waiting for you. The website is redrockgarage.ca. .ca means Canada. Redrockgarage.ca. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's Beaverdale, British Columbia on Highway 33, the Red Rock Garage. Redrockgarage.ca. 
Still looking at my boots the other day, flipping them up and looking at the underside of them. I'm stunned that they aren't all chewed up by the foot pegs that I'm running because I'm running a more aggressive foot peg that IMS makes with some pretty sharp teeth on it. But part of their design is the staggered tooth design that spreads the weight out. It's kind of like if you think about uh, laying on one nail as opposed to laying on a bed of nails. You probably have heard this before, laying on the bed of nails, you're supported and it even can be considered quite comfortable. Of course, laying on one nail, you can imagine what that's going to do for you. That's part of the design that goes into a an excellent foot peg, which is what IMS makes. All their foot pegs are cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They're heat treated, but aside from being incredibly tough, they are designed for adventure bikes, for your style of riding, our style of riding. And no matter whether you want a large platform like their ADV-1s or ADV-2s, right on down to the smaller pegs they get, you need a foot peg that will keep your foot connected to the bike. That is paramount. And you'll you'll know that from listening to our rider skills segments. The website is imsproducts.com. Have a look at the foot pegs that they have. They've got a, a full line. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them on Adventure Rider Radio, imsproducts.com. There was a, uh, there's there's discrepancies here. Um, he was in Colombia. And as, well, actually, as they got to the border of Colombia and Panama, there's a sign, like a little billboard. It said, no vehicles. And he's kind of looking around like, what do you mean no vehicles? There's no road. What the hell are they talking about? And so he took off and kept going. Well, Columbia had created a national park and they didn't want any vehicles through their thing. So he was crossing a river and a park official came up the river and said, no, 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 no. You can't go through there. You can't go there. And Lauren said, well, what do you mean I can't go there? He said, oh, you have to have permission from Columbia or from Bogota. You have to get permission from Bogota from the parks department to go there. Lauren said, okay, fine. That's what I need. That's what I'll get. So Lauren put a halt to the expedition, said, okay, you guys are on the payroll. You stay with the Jeep. 11 days later, he returns. He pull, you know, gets someone to pull him down river to get to a bigger river, to get down to Turbo, to get to a bus, to get to Medellin, to get to wow. Bogota, <laughs> to get this permission and returns. And he walked into the office in, in Bogota and said, I need permission to go through the Los Catios Park with my Jeep. And they kind of looked at him and said, no, you don't. And he said, well, the park official said I did. So they wrote something on a piece of paper and handed it to him. And there you go. So he returns out there, stopped at the ranger station or what he thought was the ranger station. No one was there. So he says, rains were coming. Men's on the payroll. We got to keep moving. So he had the men take him all the way up river, got back to where the Jeep was, started it up, started winching up a hill outside, out of this river bed that they were on. And uh, the park official shows up. And starts saying, no, 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 you can't go, you can't go. Lauren says, I've got the permission in the Jeep. When I get to the top of the hill, I'll show it to you. So as he gets to the top of the hill and pulls out the permission, the guy says, no, 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 no permission, no permission. You don't need permission. And at that point, Lauren realized the guy wanted money. And Lauren says, no way in hell are you going to get payoff. It's going to take more than you and your gun to stop me. Well, like Lauren said, wrong choice of words. <laughs> The guy returned with more men and more guns, and Lauren saw his point of view. Mm. So he makes him turn around at this point. Well, the Jeep was left abandoned there. He couldn't get it out. They'd broken an axle in the meantime. By the time the guy had returned, they'd broken, I think, an axle. I don't know. I can't quote that one. I'm not sure. I have to go through the journals. Something in the rear end broke, whether it was the differential or an axle shaft. I'm not too sure. So he... um, 
saw the point of view and said, okay, fine, I'm out of here. So he left and he never got back to recover the Jeep. Um, I don't know exactly what the series of events are that, that surround the fact that he just basically abandoned it, other than the fact that he didn't want to get confronted again by this park official anytime soon. So that Jeep still sits there, maybe? That Jeep is still somewhere. We have pic- We have a picture taken by Helga Patterson back in 87, I believe, was when Helga was through, 80, 86. Right. 86 of the Jeep's hood on a, just laying on a padagua, a dugout, in the village of Bihau, I believe is where it is, uh, that Helga took. <laughs> <laughs> Still looks really in good condition. Uh, when Ed Culberson went through, he said it was on the police chief's wall. I think that's what he said in his book. And I'm not positive that's where it was because because that would have been 86 also. So I, I don't know. We have a photograph of it on the, the picture of it on the laying over the over a dugout in the village. Um, so that's put an end to that particular trip. And uh, Lauren went back to work. And in the meantime, I mean, I saw him in 79. I didn't see him in 77, but I did see him briefly in 79 because that trip was, he, he didn't stop. He would just headed through. And that's when he had the political problem with the park official and he didn't even stop in Panama, I don't think, on the way back. I don't know. I don't remember. And next time I heard or saw from him was in 84 when he returned. Uh, this time he was driving a 1966 CJ5. In the 80s, when he wanted to, had saved up enough money to start the trip again, uh, American Motors was partially owned by Renault. And he felt that a new Jeep would not be a totally American-made company. Mm. So he looked for a used one and found the 66 CJ5 hardtop, which is the first time he'd had a hardtop. He's six foot four. And as you described, getting into the five is difficult because of that cutout where the door is. Mm -hmm. Well, being six foot four, he couldn't see out the windshield because of that hardtop. It also, the windshield, the top of the Jeep curves down to the windshield. The windshield doesn't go all the way up to, you know, the very top of the Jeep. So Mm -hmm. he cut the whole top of the Jeep off and raised it four inches. And if you ever see a picture of the Jeep, you'll see a lot of bolts like around the door where he had to screw on or bolt on extra four inches of metal to lengthen the doors. And then there's a black stripe under the windshield and across the back underneath the rear side windows. And that kind of hides the metal that, or is painted black metal where the Jeep was, the roof was raised so that he could sit up in the seat and see out the window without hunching over. Wow. That's a lot of work. (laughs) And uh, he had roll bars, winch, pipe bumpers, um, crash pans. We had a, a, a Ramsey power takeoff winch on there. And this time, the timing was right with his job. He could get out of the job at a time when he could get up to Alaska while there was no snow and ice, and he could start the the, the expedition actually at Rhodes End, North America. Uh, and he started at Prudhoe Bay, had to have special permission because at that time you couldn't drive from Fairbanks to Prudhoe Bay. It was the haul road for the oil companies. Only oil company personnel were allowed on the haul road. And he did letter writing and everything there in Fairbanks and and nothing. And finally, he made contact with, I think it was Peter Kiewit, a construction company that was working up there. And 
again, he'd had been in the construction field and he told him what he wanted to do, that he wanted to start at the Arctic Ocean furthest road north and therefore he needed to go to Prudhoe Bay. And they said, oh, yeah, fine, we'll hire you. We're going to make you a courier. And they gave him an envelope probably filled with day-old mail and newspapers and said, you need to drive this to Prudhoe Bay. <laughs> You know, what it's a real great official. way to skirt the rules. <laughs> yeah. So he was he was uh, able to drive all the way to Prudhoe Bay and he couldn't drive right down to the ocean, but he could walk right over to it. It was that close to him. Mm-hmm. And that's where he started the expedition on uh, May 15th, excuse me, June 15th, 1984 and uh, started south. And by this time in Panama, I was on my own and... Uh, I was still working for the Girl Scout office, and I thought, well, I know what his philosophy is about volunteers. If I say I'm going to go, I damn well better show up. Otherwise, I'll have lost any credibility with the gentleman. So I decided to work it out with my my job that, first of all, January, February in the Girl Scout office, things are pretty slow anyway. We're not really doing that much. We don't have camps going on or anything else. And I had a bookkeeper that worked for me and I said, I will take leave without pay and she can then be full time and run the office and do that. They said, okay, fine. Yeah, you can do that. What's your, what's your interest in Lauren at this point? Uh, Is there interest in Lauren or just interest in the expedition or both? Expedition at this point. I mean, I, I just want to, I want to see the gap. I had never seen it. I've heard about it. I've been involved in helping other people in, in addition to Lauren get through the gap. We'd helped a, a bicyclist uh, many years ago, my ex-husband and I, my family, when my dad and mom were down there, we met a young uh, group of uh, guys that came down, wanted to go through. We helped them get organized and supplies and took care of their vehicle because they weren't taking the vehicle through, they were hiking through. Um, so I'd always had somehow ties to it, if you want to say. I'd always wanted to. I'd helped enough people get there and get through it that I wanted to do it. Did did you not worry about the difficulties of it? I mean, you you know fully what you're getting into. You've been around it enough. Yeah, I I don't think I was really worried about any... First of all, I didn't feel that there was that big a danger. Um, Difficulties, yeah, that's... I don't know. I, I, I don't think I really looked at it as difficult, uh, even though at times it was. Um, But it was, again, I I probably have that same thing, gene in my body. I was looking at it as a romantic adventure. You know, this is something out into the unknown, something that, you know, few people have ever experienced. Well, I mean, you've got jungle to deal with. You've got humidity. You've got animals. I think you've got insects. <laughs> oh, in, yeah. insects. Yeah. Insects are probably worse than animals. We made enough noise. There was no sane animal within, you know, 100 yards of camp at any time. Mm. Insects, unfortunately, they were, there were lots of those. Um, but no, I, I, I arranged to, to be able to go. And I thought once I had all my ducks in a row that, you know, everything was going to be taken care of, all responsibilities covered. Then I told Lauren, I want to go with you. He said, okay, fine. You know, his nephew had come down from the States, um, 20 some year old nephew out of uh, Spokane, uh, Washington area. And he joined the expedition as well. And uh, we took off on the 21st of February, 85. And Ed Culperson was with us for that first 30 days. We towed his bike a lot. First off, I got to say, motorcycles with clutches and the Darien Gap 
are not a good combination. Okay, hang on. Who, who is Ed? Where does he come from? Uh, Ed Culberson uh, was from the two, boy, I think he was from the tech, somewhere in Texas, maybe Florida, maybe Florida. And how does he end different. up on the expedition? He has a, a BMW, and I can't remember, G, you may be able to help me out on this, GS80. At that time, this was 85, it was about the only thing BMW made that was close to an off-road bike. Oh, it's the R80 GS. Ah, that's what it is. I remember the opposing heads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very awkward. Um, and Ed was a fairly short guy. He was a former Army intelligence very fit, very active, and he wanted to go through the gap. So he and Lauren struck up a deal, and Lauren, or Ed would pay half, and Lauren would pay half, and anything, you know, I think, well, Ed had to put $1,000 up front, and then after that, everything would be split down the middle. And uh, so, yeah, so we took off well, hang him on, on his so, bike. So the, sorry, so, uh, but so what you're doing here, then you're taking a Jeep, or Lauren's taking his Jeep, and then he has Ed, who's along with his R80GS motorcycle, both right. trying to get through the Darien Gap all land. Well, uh, now Ed's goal wasn't really all land. Okay. He was just trying to ride the Pan-American Highway from the entire length of the Pan-American Highway, I believe was his goal. He never stipulated he wanted to be all on land. Um, and within a short period of time, matter of days, it was obvious that Ed could go a lot faster than we could. But he didn't want to break off on his own. We, you know, Lauren said, you know, you could make better time, take a couple of guys and, you know, a shackle and cable and they'll pull you up the hill so you don't burn your clutch out because that's what's going to happen. If you if you aren't towed up those hills, there's hills there you're not going to, I mean, we're winching up, so you're not going to be able to ride up it. Mm-hmm. Uh, between the fact that there's exposed roots and loose uh, leaves and just a little moisture on those leaves overnight or whatever, and it's it's slick. What kind of what kind of steepness are we talking here? What kind of grade? Oh boy, that's kind of hard to say. Like it, like describe I'm what it'd looking, be like to try and walk up it. Better use a walking stick. Um, I'm going to say in the neighborhood of. Let's see. That's a 45. Uh, I'm going to say greater than 45 degrees. So probably 45 degrees oh, or wow. greater. You're winching up. Oh, yeah. Um, and like I said, the the and you're, you're, you're not going to be able to ride a bike up these hills. If it was just straight and totally dry and no exposed roots, sure, you can ride a motorcycle up there if you're good. But you know, it, that's not what it is. It's not a paved highway or even a cleared highway. It's got branches that, you know, cut. Uh, we hired natives. It's a trail already or are you make it, it? No, no. We hired natives to search trail and clear trail. Um, and our goal was not to cut down huge trees. First of all, we're using axes and machetes. We don't have any chainsaws or any of that stuff. Again, sticking to the, the romantic aspect of the expedition. Um so it was a lot cheaper and easier to usually cut around a difficult point than to cut down a huge tree. You know, just, okay, there's a tree there. Then, okay, make a trail, go around them or something. You know, we you know, find mm-hmm. a different route. There's, there's other places. That's one thing about the forest or the woods or the jungle. It's, 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 a no, it's just cut around it. Don't, don't cut right through it. And um, so Ed was on occasion up the hills would just cable to the back of the Jeep and then we'd winch the Jeep up and that would pull, pull Ed's bike up. Um, 
And we, gosh, we did 30 miles in the first 30 days. We thought, well, this is not going as planned because we thought 30 miles or 30 days would get us through. Well, that didn't work. And uh, Ed, by that time, had decided, yeah, it was, it, he tried, he broke off about a week before uh, Lauren called a halt and uh, tried it on his own and, and then took his bike out by a dugout and returned the next year to finish uh, the rest of the Darien and uh, the rest of the Pan American Highway in South America. And you're on this expedition. What are you doing? Um, a lot of times I'm just in camp. I'll kind of make sure the food, keeping check on the food, food supplies, um, that there is enough food. We had anywhere from 14 to four to 14 men working for us. They were paid. Uh, they were paid. So it's a mix of paid uh, and volunteer. Well, yeah, I'm the only volunteer at this point. Well, Lawrence, uh, the nephew. Um, yeah, this that was the other thing Lauren learned. If you want to do something, you pay these people and you're not, you'll get through. And they're like, we always said they're the only ones that knew we were where we were. We were totally lost. We didn't know where we were. If it wasn't for them, we'd still be there. You're following the natives that you're paying to make the trail. They're, they right. presumably know where you have to go. Well, we would say, you know, we knew that, okay, we want to go to this village. And, and we always knew what village was out there, more or less, or what general direction we wanted to go. Um, and they were they were good, uh, especially the Choco. They were easy to work with, uh, head over heels, better workers than the, the Kuna. And... Uh, the one black we had working for us continually, we, well, the first, I shouldn't say this, the first season, because this is now 85 when we're in there, we hired um, four blacks working for us. One was a, our cook, and then the other three uh, cleared trail. And the cook's job was, I would supervise making sure there was food. Other than that, he was free reign to, to, to cook. I wasn't, I wasn't cooking for everybody. That was definitely, I draw the line there. Um <laughs> Do laundry. I mean, I would, I'd wash clothes. I'd read. Uh, I'd go out on trail sometimes when they were clearing trail because there'd be days where the Jeep would sit in camp for maybe a day, maybe two days. And then the men would be out clearing trail and we'd move, oh, a half a mile the next day. Woohoo. Uh, well, and, and, and with the bike, he's sitting there as well. Right. Uh, well, Ed would go out on trail with the men and work, work men on trail. You, you kind of had to go out with the natives uh, and supervise, um, not necessarily swing the machete, but you know, you could help out a little bit because they could outswing you for sure. They were, they were born with a machete. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes, you know, they, especially Lauren could look at a hill and say, okay, too much of a side hill. We're going to have to reroute over this way. Or, you know, we can do this or that because this terrain isn't that good. Let's, let's change it a little bit. Um Right, too rocky, he, he too what, steep. He knows the vehicle. He knows right. what, he, what it's going to do and where he can winch. Right, what it'll do and what it needs to go through. Right. Um, and we got to the town of a village of Pukaru, which is a Kuna village. And Lauren decided 30 days, oh, 30 days. And uh, we had to call a halt because we weren't going to make, rains were coming. It's now early, late February, early March. I think it was the first week of March and the rains were headed that way. And the Los Catios National Park in Colombia was also still looming in front of him uh, with the park officials and supposedly no vehicles and all this other nonsense. So he wanted to find a way to circumvent the park as much as possible. When we hit the border, try to find a way to go around the park instead of through the park. So he decided he would stay near this Kuna village of Pukuru. 
they, the villagers set up a place and they said, okay, here's a place you can camp, you know, outside the village, near the village, but not right in the village, uh, access to the river, that sort of thing. And uh, Lawrence and I returned to Panama City. Ed, by that time, had taken his bike out back to Panama City by boat. And uh, I went back to my job. Lawrence went back to the States. And I would gather up supplies and send them down via the missionary pilot that would fly in about every six to eight weeks into this village because there was a, a missionary family that lived there. And so, I uh, would, sorry, there's a crew there waiting with the Jeep? Just Lauren. Just mm, Lauren staying outside this village, you know, close to, but mm. not in the village itself. Um, and I would gather up paperback books, uh, cases of canned goods, uh, old newspapers, magazines, whatever I felt he could read. And I would take stuff that and then I'd gather stuff up for the natives in the village. Uh, material, plastic, oh, Tupperware containers, plastic containers with lids, glass jars. Uh, things like that that they they really liked. And I would go out to the missionary pilot and he would fly the stuff down to Pukaru, get Lauren to get his supplies, and I'd pay the pilot a minimal amount of money and he would deliver the supplies to Lauren and then the stuff to the villagers as well. And this went on for almost nine months. And I decided, and I, I told Lauren, I said, I'd like to come back, but I've got to arrange for my job again and all that. I said, but in the meantime, let me check with my cousin in Florida. So I called my cousin in Florida. I said, hey, Nick, I got a great idea for a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. He said, do you mind if I bring my brother-in-law? And I said, no, bring Don, no problem at all. I just didn't think Don would be the type that would do something like this. So they flew down to Panama, and I was able to arrange for my job to be taken care of again for, for a short period of time. And we all flew via the missionary pilot back to Pukaru and got the Jeep squared away. It was a total mess uh, as far as Lauren had been living in it for nine months. And, and uh, what was Lauren doing during that time? Uh, well, like he said, his quote is, watching the rains fall and the bananas grow. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he, and he's waiting for the rainy season to end is what he's right. doing. Right. He did a lot of writing in his journal too. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, he's waiting for, for dry season. So uh, Nick and Don and I flew down, arrived in early January. And within about three or four days, we had the Jeep tuned up and repacked. And we were on the trail. And we started out and really made quite reasonable time. Had uh, some difficult areas. And as we got uh, closer to the village of Paya, or just to the village of Paya, uh, which is another Choco village and, the, uh, excuse me, Kuna village, and the last village in Panama before the border, about six miles from the border, I believe. And uh, Nick and Don, that was about three weeks it had taken us to go get that far. And Nick and Don had to return to their jobs in the States. So they uh, went back to Panama City via dugout boat down the down up the rivers, excuse me, no, down the rivers, um, and then got to a place where you could get a light plane out of uh, Yavisa and fly back to Panama City. I stayed with the trip because I thought we're going to make it through. And uh, little did I know, we um, got to the border, which is like a pile of rubble. That's about the only thing that marked it while we were there. And then we were trying to turn in a whole new direction to avoid this national park so that we wouldn't get in trouble. So we turned kind of in a way that was more of a south, 
kind of a southeasterly direction instead of straight through the park. And it was very, very rugged. And by this time, Lauren had met this uh, one black man that lived in the Kuna village. Name was Juan, is Juan, Juan Ribas. We called him Cookie. He's my brother. I mean, there are, and, and also Lauren was able to get Margarito as a guide. Margarito had worked for Lauren on one of his previous trips uh, on, into the Daring Gap. And we weren't able to find him in 85 when we started out, but we were in 86. He was able to locate him. And uh, Margarito and Cookie, two men who do not speak a word of English other than okay. I don't really speak Spanish at all. Lauren doesn't speak Spanish. I trust these two men with my life. If they tell me to jump, I don't even ask how high. I just jump. These men are without a doubt. I mean, I, I love them dearly. I really do. Um, I can't say enough good about them. They've got some health problems now, which is kind of sad. But then again, we, we are all getting up there. So Where do they live? I kind of expect they're in the, they still live. Well, Margarito lives outside Panama City in Panama and Cookie uh, still lives in the Darien. And I have people that go down that I'm in contact with that periodically go down and take pictures of them and Cookie and send them back to me. And I send mm-hmm. notes and pictures down to Cookie or <laughs> ask them to deliver shotgun shells and that sort of thing. But yeah, the, the two people I trust implicitly, but they were with us in 86. Uh, and uh, we crossed the uh, the border and tried to stay out of the, the park. At this point, we don't know where the park is. There's no signs. There's nothing. We're just, you know, using our noses as our sense of direction and going. And Margarito was a, a good guide. And he, he always used his machete and one arm out, machete out one side left arm out straight the other side. That's how wide the trail had to be. And if he raised his machete over his head, that's how high the trail had to be. Because having a hard top on the Jeep, the trail had to be kind of high compared to what it would be if you had a no top on the Jeep. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Jeep was outfitted so that uh, it had a table, a roof rack on the uh, top, and it came off at night and it attached to the side of the Jeep. And that became, quote unquote, table bed. If we're eating dinner, we'd sat on that and ate dinner or... If it was nighttime, Lauren slept on it. And then the inside of the Jeep, he had made it so the front seats folded forward. The whole back deck was decked over with storage underneath. And then there were two boards that were extra that were kept on the back deck that you could swing around to an angle iron that he'd attached to the front dash. And I could sleep in there. That made my bed up in there. And I had big mosquito nets that I had to put magnets in and sewed so that around the two doors and the, the back window, I had a pretty secure, nice area. And uh, got through to, let's see, we were in, well into Colombia. And Margarito was out on trail two or three days. And then he'd come back and tell us what trail was like. And one day he came back to, to camp and he told us about this big tree that was in the middle of the trail. And Lauren said, don't you worry about big tree. You just get me to big tree. Well, Margarito cleared a path. To, or, you know, what he'd do is he'd mark the trail and then our men would clear it. Got us to the top of the hill where Big Tree was and it was on a ridge um, with, oh, probably 60 degree slopes or more on either side. And this ridge was just about the width of the Jeep, maybe a little bit wider, not much. And downhill, sloping downhill ever so slightly. 
And in the middle of this ridge is this huge tree. And a lot of the trees in the tropics, we always called them, had buttress roots. So these root systems start five, six feet up the side of the tree and then come out at an angle, like a buttress on Mm -hmm. three, four, five sides, depending. Well, these buttress roots are coming out and it's blocking the trail totally. And uh, the next day, Lauren sat in the Jeep early in the morning and with his engineering background and common sense, was able to figure a way to get around Big Tree. We used almost all of our equipment. Um, The men cut the buttress route down so that we could drive over that. And um, as we got around Big Tree, Lauren had so many cables pulling the Jeep down to hold it on this terrible side hill that it was on that he didn't realize how much pressure was being pulled down. And when he hit the rear wheels, hit that buttress root that was still maybe two or three inches high, he snapped an axle shaft. Mm. If he'd used the winch instead of used, instead of trying to drive it and he would have pulled himself over it, he probably would have been fine. But hindsight is one of those things we, we don't have (laughs) the use of. And uh, fortunately it was downhill. So we did a lot of winching, but still going downhill, we were able to, to keep moving. And it wasn't but a day later, I guess, we broke the left rear axle, uh, the, yeah, the left rear axle shaft. And we came to a little farmhouse and we contracted with the farmer for 50 cents a day to watch the Jeep. And we had to get it repaired. So Lauren and Margarito removed the entire axle housing. The farmer built a little corral around it, and we had a big rain tarp we put up over it. And Lauren put the Colombian flag up, and we said goodbye to the Jeep, and we left. And we returned nine months later with a repaired axle housing, a repaired axle shaft. So he went to free-floating axles, uh, for those of you that, I, and I don't know what completely, other than when you break a normal axle shaft, it's very difficult to get the shaft out of the housing and it's a very complicated process. That mm. much I know. When you break a free-floating axle, you do an undo six bolts. You pull the shaft out and pop a new shaft in, put the six bolts back on. You don't even take the tire off the vehicle. Yeah, it's also the support. Uh, when you when you have a, a full-floating axle, the um, the bearings are on the housing rather than the bearing on the axle. Because if you break your axle in a normal uh, differential, the ac- that's your support. So your wheel falls off, basically. Wheel falls off. It starts to right. slide out, yeah. Yeah. So he went to the, we brought uh, free-floating axles from the States, replaced the axle shafts that were in the housing with the free-floating ones, and we continued on. And that season, this is now 87, and I, by this time, I, my job had been, um, due to the U.S.-Panama treaties, my job had been abolished with the Girl Scouts. They were going to a volunteer office staff which that's all well and good, except for the fact that I needed to have an income and, a, and housing and that sort of thing. And if it was going to a volunteer office staff, I was going to lose all that. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, this is making my mind up. And I said to Lauren, I said, do you mind if I join full time? He said, no. So I joined full time for that last season. Uh, when we returned to the Jeep, uh, it was in January sometime, mid-January by then. And on March 4th, 1987, we crossed the Atrato River into the village of Rio Sucio in Colombia. And that was officially the end of the Darien Gap crossing. That was 125 miles is what we clocked and 741 days from the day we left a road to the day we were on a 
point where there was some form of a road in Colombia. Wow. Now, at any time during this, does anyone on the crew look around and say, this is stupid? <laughs> like, what are we doing? No, Do I never felt that? that. Yeah, no, I never felt that. It was one of those things that I think by then I'd had the been bitten by the bug, so to speak, that, mm-hmm. okay, this we're, we're going to do this. If it doesn't work, damn it, we're going to make it work. We're going to get it done. And uh, at that point, once we completed that crossing and we had that behind us, that's when we decided that maybe we should seek some form of sponsorship and check out with Guinness. And uh, so we wrote letters starting right after we got out of the gap. And uh, Guinness did give us a, a, a Guinness book entry in their 1972 book, excuse me, 1992 book for the first all land crossing of the Darien Gap by vehicle. Unfortunately, Guinness doesn't give, give firsts anymore. They do only a record that can be broken. So we don't get a record for continuing on and being the first to circumnavigate the world all by land except for the South Atlantic, nor did we get a first for the Rokon expedition through the gap because their policy now is it has to be a record that's broken. So if you can pound 13 jelly beans up your nose instead of 10, you can get a record. (laughs) Wait a second. Somebody has to set the record to begin with. Otherwise, you have nothing to beat. Yeah. Well, you have to have a... It has to be able to be beaten. So... So this expedition continued on. You guys right. r- drove around the world, which is another story, really. Um, oh, yeah. But you, after this this huge expedition, which is an extremely fascinating story, uh, traveling around the world, you then went back and tried the Darien again. Well, right. Where does that come from? I don't know. <laughs> That's That may be the one that I look back and say, what were we thinking? <laughs> um. We were here in Idaho at the time, and we'd been here through one winter. We are not winter people. We knew that before we got here. We knew it even more after the first winter. So I think what we were doing is looking for a place to go that wasn't cold and snowy. And we said, well, let's, there's no one taken, has taken a motorcycle through all the way on land. Let's do that. And let's do it with an American motorcycle. Mm. sticking with the theme of all American products as much as possible. And uh, Now, are you guys uh, romantically involved at this point? Did that happen yes. on the rest of the trip that we just jumped yeah, over? Yeah, I see. it did. So, so you went from working, for, you no longer get a paycheck at that point then. <laughs> no, I didn't get a paycheck before either. Oh, so, so you were missing out on I paid. <laughs> <laughs> I paid for that. <laughs> Cup along, but bring your checkbook. <laughs> right. <laughs> so wh- um, what's the plan? Well, we started making plans for it, and we thought, well, first of all, and Lauren had seen a Rokon before, many, many years ago. He said, that's the only American-made motorcycle that could do this job, because number one, it has good tires, it's got two-wheel drive, it has chain drive to the front as well as the rear, and it doesn't have a clutch. So you're not going to risk burning something out. You can burn other things out, we found, but you can't burn a clutch out. And this is a, this is unusual because it's a two-wheel drive motorcycle. Now, I made the mistake when we did a, a piece in the Darien Gap of uh, of saying, I called it more of a, of a, a mini bike on steroids, I think. And we had mm-hmm. some listeners uh, email us and say, what are you talking about? It's it's no mini bike, it's a motorcycle. Uh, that's how it's always struck me because it's to me it has more of the... the um, 
I don't know. It just reminds me of a mini bike, I guess. It's it's a, a bike I've never had. I would love to have one, but they're as expensive as a, a new motorcycle now. But the big thing with this is, is this is a serious, like almost built. It is. It's built for expeditions, isn't it? I mean, it drives well, both wheels. It does. It drives both wheels. It has a torque converter so they can actually... Um, use it for, they've got all sorts of implements you can attach to it. I mean, I think there's, um, what do you call them? Discs that you can use, log splitters, uh, various things like that, because it's such a a heavy duty vehicle. Um, The other nice thing was it only weighed 185 pounds. So two people could virtually lift it over a fallen tree. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the added weight of the fuel, of course, was always a consideration. And another going uh, plus in its favor is it had um, implement tires. So these big, uh, I think they were 5.9 by 15 inch implement tires on there. And it had 15 inch uh, wheels and they were aluminum and they're hollow. So each wheel could hold four and a half gallons of gasoline if that's what you, which is what we put in them mm-hmm. so you had not only four and a half gallons in your front wheel and four and a half gallons in your rear wheel but then you had almost three gallons in the tank so you could carry quite a bit of fuel right on the motorcycle because the idea here is is the two of you plus however many crew you're going to bring in and the the rocon is the only vehicle one right that's it and th- I'm not riding it, of course. We took the rear seat off and we uh, made I made saddlebags for it for our personal clothing and uh, bedding. And um, everyone walked except Lauren. Uh, everyone packed something on their pack. We had to hire men. Now, of course, everyone has to pack. Your food has to be packed. Your uh, cooking equipment has to be packed. Plus, now the men have to carry their own bedding with them before we put a lot of it in the Jeep. So, I mean, mostly the men didn't have to carry anything other than their machete. Well, now all of a sudden um, they're going to have to carry stuff. So we had porters more than anything else uh, carrying things. Mm. How old Uh, are you guys at this point? uh, Lauren was, let's see, this was 95. He had just turned 60, I think. He was born in 35. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm about 19 years younger. And uh, it was, um, it's, a, it's a remarkable bike. I mean, they, they touted it as a go-anywhere bike. And we basically proved that you can go just about anywhere on it. Um, it'll, you can ride steeper hills on it than you can sit on. I mean, the bike is capable of going up a fairly steep hill. It's just that you're not capable of sitting on it at that angle. Mm. Lauren proved that going up a, a hill out of a riverbank. And I mean, it just kept going up and up and up and finally came all the way over and came down on top of them. Um, but we did that trip in 49 days. However, within the first uh, 17 days of the trip, this was 1995, uh, we, we shipped the bike down to Panama and then we shipped it by um, riverboat, coastal boat, up to the town of Pinogana, and which is a short distance from Yavisa, which Yavisa is the end of the Pan-American Highway. So we had to then at Pinogana drive to Yavisa across this little spit of land in order to say, OK, we're starting at Yavisa. And then turn around and drive back to Pino Ghana. So we had that little spit of land. We had to go twice, which was fine. Once you clear the trail, it's cleared. In fact, we started out calling the trip through the gap and back 
because we thought, shoot, it's going to be a lot easier to turn around and come back the way we went. The trail's going to be cleared. It's going to be, you know, perfectly good. And cheaper than trying to ship out of Columbia because you can't, you know, it'd be more difficult than, than trying to find a shipper that'll ship the bike back to the U.S. out of Columbia. So we had originally called it Through the Gap and Back. Uh, we got down there and on May, uh, excuse me, February 11th, 1995, we took off and uh, went to Yavisa, turned around, went back to Pinagana. That was day one of the Daring Gap Crossing and uh, continued on. And within the first, I think it was the 17th day, we arrived near the village of Pukaru. We had Cookie working for us um, and Cookie and another villager, Stanislaw, another uh, Kuna Indian. And we had two Choco working for us, Angel and Julio. And Stanislaw and Cookie and Lauren all walked into the village of Pukaru. Cookie and Stanislaw both live in the village of Pukaru. And went in to see the chief and asked for permission for us to come into the village. We, we knew this was protocol. And the chief said, yes, yes, come, come, set up camp over here. So we went over and got through the village and set up camp on the far side near the river. And working with the Kuna, you have to go to their meeting hall. And then it's discussed as to who you can hire to work for you. Because you have to hire Kunas to go through the Kuna territory. And... Uh, I stayed with the motorcycle while Lauren went into the, the meeting hall to the meeting. And looking through his notes, he talks about how they're very, very upset that we have two Choco working for us. The Kuna do not like the Choco. And uh, Lauren said, that's fine. They won't work between here and the border. I will hire Kunas to take their place, but they will accompany me and even though they will remain on the payroll, they won't have to work because they will work further than the border. The Kuna will only work as far, far as the next village. The Kuna at Pukaru would only work as far as, Kuna, as far as Paya and the Indians, the villagers at Paya, the Kuna would only work as far as the border. Now there's nothing at the border. There's nowhere to hire. So way back, um, several days before we got to Pukaru, Lauren had... Uh, left me at the uh, Choco village of Basal, and he had taken about a week and gone out by boat into Colombia, over the mountains, hiked over the mountains into Colombia, and hired men with a horse and a burrow, or donkey burrow, yeah, to meet us at the border. They can't come across the border because the hoof and mouth disease, but they could meet us at the border. And that way they would help carry supplies once we reached the border because the Kunas weren't going to work any further. And we'd have Angel and Julio working for us, the two Choco. Well, they got all, the, the Kuna Indians got all upset about the two Choco Indians, and there was a big uproar and everything going on. Well, I'm not a part of any of this. I'm sitting happily in camp, resting my feet or something, minding my own business, and all of a sudden about eight Kuna guys rush into camp, just chattering up a storm and going for the bike. And I sat on the bike. I said, you guys cannot have the bike. Lauren's the only one that can move the bike. Where's Lauren? Well, they immediately started picking up all our gear that was laying around, the backpacks, the the pack, the big duffel bags with the cooking equipment in it and the food, and taking off. And about that time, because I kept calling Lauren and sitting on the bike so no one would move the bike. And uh, Lauren walks in. He says, they want us to take the bike to the meeting hall. I said, that's fine. But if the bike's going, we're all going. Everything's going. 
So we all move into the meeting hall and the meeting progresses and progresses. And there's a lot of chattering. And finally, finally, it comes out. They want money. We, again, my Spanish is not very good. I thought they said $50. And we said, okay, will you take a traveler's check? That's all we got. We, that's one thing we let them know is we really don't carry a lot of cash. Even though we had cash, we don't let it be known that we carried cash. Mm-hmm. Would you take a traveler's check? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll take a traveler's check. I said, okay, fine. So I grab a traveler's check and I walk up to the table and he sees it says $50 on it. He says, no, 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 no. I said, what do you mean no? He says, $500. And I grabbed the check. I said, basically, no freaking way. He wants $500 for what? That's <laughs> that's what we said. But this isn't to pay the workers that, that, that no, you're going to take. No, no. This is basically a fee. what it came out was it's a new law. And they had it all itemized, at least verbally. It was going to be $500 for a motorcycle. And they had it all the way down to $10 for a photograph. I mean, they had it itemized if you're walking through, if you're going through on a bicycle. I mean, they had it all. And we said, no way. And Angel and and, um, Julio, the two Choco, were sitting right behind us in the meeting hall. And when I told them no way with the check, they were the, the Kuna went over and immediately chained the bike to a post. And we said, we'll go back. They said, no, no, you can't go back. It's still $500. We said, no, wait a minute. We asked permission to come into the village. We were granted permission to come into the village. And now you're telling us we have to pay $500 just to get out of the village, even if we go back the way we came? Yes. We said, okay, so this now is gone from just a simple payoff to kidnapping and ransom because Mm -hmm. they won't let us go. We're not leaving without the bike and we're not paying them $500. So we turned to to Julio and uh, Angel and uh, said, and it's now nine o'clock at night. We said, you have to get back to Basal, which is six miles and change away from Pucaro, and uh, get word to the police at Paya and to the American embassy because they knew what was going on. They they spoke the language. They they knew exactly what was going on. And uh, we gave them a, their machetes and uh, some water. And I mean, that was one of the most frightening things I think I've done was setting them out because I thought, my God, what are they going into? What will these Kuna do to these two guys on the trail? I was yeah. so frightened for them. Um, so that night was called to a halt. I mean, it was, we said, okay, we're, we're sleeping right here with the motorcycle. And um, and these this isn't the village chief that's that's in charge right now. This is kind of a bunch of young twenty something kids that are running this show. The village chief is more of a figurehead, which we didn't really realize at the time. Um, so the village chief wasn't involved here. Doesn't no, maybe doesn't, doesn't even know what's going on. Well, I think he was there, but he certainly wasn't making any uh, decisions or comments or anything else. And. We asked, we asked uh, Cookie and we asked uh, Stanislaw, did you know about this law? And they said, no, we never heard of this law. So this law just happened to happen just as we came into the village, I guess. And uh, we had a letter that we had written, one written in, both written in Spanish, one by the Panamanian embassy in, in the U.S. and one by the Colombian embassy in the U.S., just a letter of introduction stating who we are, passport numbers, what we were doing, please afford them every uh, courtesy that you possibly can, blah, blah, blah. Um, that didn't mean anything to the the Kunas. Well, late the next day, we're still wondering what's going on, three Guardia police arrived from Paya. They'd gotten the message from 
the Choco. So we at least know that, that Julio and, and Angel made it back to, to their village. And uh, which means not only do they make it to their village, but they then had to get in a dugout and pole all the way upriver to the village of Paya because there's no telephones, there's no communication upriver to get the message to the police at Paya, who and then rode horseback back to Pukuru. And they they were kind of their hands were kind of tied because the Kuna it's basically an autonomous region in Panama, so it, it's. They have a lot of, the Kunas have a lot of leeway. So the police tried to state our case and the Kunas finally came down and they said, okay, we'll, we'll agree to um, $250 for Pukaru and $250 for Paya. And we said, what? This is still crazy. This is still not making sense. And the Guardia said, look, what we're going to do is we're going to leave and we're going to go back to Paya. And then one of them was going into Panama City to see what he could do from that end. So and, what, what's it like for you, though, sitting there? Like, are, are you sitting, I, are they sitting was, around watching you? Or? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was really a frightening experience to have them lock the to be so adamantly rabid about the whole thing. That, that, that they just, you know, we're, we're looking at it as a common sense way. You know, you ask permission, you're invited in, therefore you shouldn't charge people mm-hmm. to leave, whether they want to go one direction or the other direction. If there's a new law, you state ahead of time, okay, we have this new law. You're welcome to come in if you want to abide by this new law. But that wasn't done. So then they were so rabid about the whole thing that that's what was frightening to me. I remember before the Guardia left, the one gentleman, I think he was a lieutenant, he looked at me and he asked me, he says, are you frightened? And I said, yes, I am. And he turned around to the villagers that were in the meeting hall and he talked to them in Spanish. And like I said, I wish I spoke the language fluently, but it boiled down to you guys better not harm these people. And uh, because they probably would have taken us out of there if we'd asked him to, but they wouldn't have been able to get the bike. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, was there any thought of paying it five hundred dollars? I mean, not five hundred. No, five hundred. What's what that? What's that like today? I don't know. I mean, at the time we were paying ten dollars a day for wages to the natives working for us, and at that, that was probably easily three dollars over the going daily wage of someone in the city, if not more. Per person. Per person. I see. Plus three meals a day. We're giving them their all their food. Right. So you're um, talking a big chunk of your expedition money. Right. So yeah, 500 was definitely out of it. So after the Guardia left, we're still all talking. And they finally came down to 200 each for Pukaru and Paya. So we said, okay, fine. What we'll do is we will pay you 200 and we will pay Paya 200. But we won't pay until the expedition's finished. And they knew this from going through with the Jeep that we did not pay the men off until we got back to Panama City and sent the money out that way. We sent it out with the missionary pilot. I had envelopes with the men's name on it and their pay in it. And that's how, so they trusted us. They may not like us. They may want to rip us off, but they trusted us. We said, we will pay you. We will send the money out with Cookie when we get back to Panama and you'll get paid. Why do you do it that way? Well, we don't have to carry all the cash. I see. Otherwise, you know, other, number one, not only are you carrying more cash, but you're showing more cash if you're paying people off. 
Mm. Any fear of them not uh, sticking it out for the whole thing? Well, the the Kunas wouldn't work past Paya. Uh, the Kunas from Pukuru wouldn't work past Paya, and the Kunas from um, Paya wouldn't work past the border. We had to get, that's why we had Angel and Julio with us, and Cookie. Cookie would work. I mean, they, they were independently strong-willed-minded people. But as you said, they knew you. You've been to the Darien now multiple right. times, you know, the different expeditions. They know who you are. Right. They know us. They knew we would pay them when we got back. So it was that was what agreed to. So we left Pukaru and took off, made it to Paya. Um, when we got to Paya, I went into the police station and checked with, oh, he's a captain. That's right. He was a captain. I checked with the captain. He said that the other gentleman had gone into Panama City to work it out, but he didn't look hopeful. But he, the captain, had radioed the uh, headquarters in Yavisa. And he said to me, and this is not his terms literally, but basically he said what the uh, the Guardia headquarters in Yavisa said was get out of Dodge as soon as, soon as you can at all costs. <laughs> so hang on a second. So you, you've made it through the region. Is that what you've done? And then right. you're, you're heading out and they're telling right. you get out of there? Well, basically get out of the Kuna territory. Why? As fast as yeah. Because they were not having any luck with them either. They, they're just a difficult group of people to deal with and they they didn't want to have a problem between the gringos and the kunas. But you had already agreed to pay your your $400 right. in total. Yeah, we uh, yeah, we told them we said it's already been taken care of and they said good, just get the heck out of there. Mm. Um and day or two after we left Paya, we um yeah, cuz the the kunas were no longer with us. We were across the border. Um we had stopped for lunch. We had our our mule and a couple of other guides that Lauren uh, men uh working so we had a group waiting at the border. That was another reason we didn't want to waste too much more time in Pukaru was we had men on the payroll sitting at the border waiting for us. Mm. So, you know, you, you're putting money out for this and not going anywhere. Plus, you're haggling with these people here. So we said, OK, we'll agree to the 200 each village and that's it. And uh, so we got to the border. Well the, well, the interesting thing is, before you get into the breakdown, is that it seems like a, what you're describing is like a whole different world going on there. I mean, nothing seems to work like the outside world. It just seems so bizarre. That's that's the good word for it. It's a whole different world. Definitely is a whole different world. Different pace of life. You always listened real closely to hear a plane go overhead. So you knew that there was still civilization out there because otherwise you had no idea. Did, did it seem scary to you at all? The only time it was scary was when they locked it up, mm. when they locked up the Rokon. And uh, and you're scared for your life at that point. Well, I don't know if I, I just mad, I think, but I'm scared too. Yeah, scared. I don't know if I was scared for my life. Yeah, probably pretty close to it because they were pretty rabid about the whole thing. Mm. What broke down? Um, the Rokon, her motor... Lauren started it up and the whole thing sounded like a concrete mixer or that it was just filled with nuts and bolts. The magneto flywheel went bad. Now, I, 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 this is all my terminology, so I, bear with me because I don't have a degree in automotive or Rokon maintenance. Um, the center of the flywheel had a three-quarter inch bushing in the middle of it, and that separated and came apart from the flywheel itself. And then everything started wobbling in there. And then according to Lauren, his quote was damage. It caused damage to the straighter. Now, I don't know what a straighter is. A stator. 
A stator. Yeah. Okay. A stator. And a series of coil-like doodads. So that's Lauren's terminology. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she wasn't running. And we had no idea how to fix it. Lauren said, if we'd had super glue, we probably could have glued that bushing back in there and maybe made it work, but there was no way. And uh, so again, we co contracted with a little, we're well into, we're actually out of the mountains now. We're well into um, the flatlands of Colombia near the Atrato Swamp area. And we contract with a local resident to watch the Rocon for a dollar a day. And of course, we take our book with us and all our valuables. And we hike out to a place where we know we can get a boat to get another boat to get another boat to get downriver to the Atrato to get on a bigger boat to take us to Turbo. And once we get to Turbo, then we know we can get to Medellin by bus. We get to Medellin and we, uh, it took us what? One, two, three, four, four days to get to Medellin. Uh, we arrive in Medellin and on uh, the next day, we send a fax to Rocon uh, saying that we're not sure what went wrong, but instead of sending parts, or if you send parts, then you better send detailed instructions on what we need to do to replace it or send a whole new motor, which, you know, you think of, okay, that's going to be huge and expensive. It weighed 11 pounds, so it wasn't that big. Right. They, now, now, is Rocon a sponsor for you guys at this point? They gave us a break on the pr uh, pr uh, price of the motorcycle. They cut the price for us by maybe a couple thousand dollars. Other than that, that was it. But the motor, this whole thing, they took care of. They sent us an entire new motor via DHL. And we sent the fax on the 16th of May of March. And we had the hen engine in our hands two days later. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's incredible. But you've still got to it go is. another four days back. Right. Now we have to go. Yeah, right. Now that that's that's just, yeah, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Now we got to get back to where Varrocon is and replace it. Um, March uh, 21st, we're back in the village of Limon, which is within just a few hour or so of where we left the motorcycle. And uh, we spent that previous night there. And uh, the 21st of March was our first wedding anniversary. So that always, you know, was kind of important that we were in Boca Limon for our first wedding anniversary. And uh, we got back to Rosinante by like 8.30 in the morning. And by 11.30, the engine was in and she was fired up and running. Rosinante being the name of the, of the bike. Bike. And we were back on the trail. And as we're going along, like I said, it's, Lauren's able to actually drive quite a bit at this point because it's pretty easy going, pretty flat. Um, so he's sometimes uh, ahead of us by, you know, 20, 30 minutes because we're just walking. And um, we are coming up to the village of La Raya, which we'd gone near in the uh, Jeep. So a lot of these people that were there knew us from previous expeditions or previous expedition anyway with, with the Jeep because we got that far. And uh, as we cross this little bridge across the river into the village of La Raya, I look down. And in the water, there's several women washing clothes. And there's a woman standing there in the river wearing fatigues. And she's got at least one, if not two pistols on her belt and a knife and a submachine gun strapped across her. And I thought, this is not a good picture. Mm -hmm. And yes, it was the face-to-face -face encounter with our first Colombian guerrillas. And uh, there were three of them in the village, two women and a man. And... We, you know, at this point, you know, we've already stepped in the door, so to speak. 
Now, now you're worried. Why? What are they going to do? Well, we've heard well. We heard rumors there. The kidnappings uh, held for ransom. There was actually a group of missionaries taken out of Pukaru and held for many, many months before they were killed. So at this point, it's it, it's not a pleasant thought that we've found that these people really do exist. Besides in news and media. Because mm-hmm. they, they want to raise money for, for their cause. For their cause, yeah, right. So they're going to try and get anything they can. And you guys are prime targets coming in with right. a whole bunch of money, or at least you look right. that way. Right, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, they show us where we can camp for the night, which was kind of like a tinned roof building with no walls, just a, just a roof and a floor. And it was a plank floor. So it was really quite nice. Who showed you that? Um, the One of the three... Gorillas. So how, how do you encounter them? Like, I know you see the, the one down in the water. Where, where do they confront you? They were right there, right after we got off the bridge. The other woman and the man were right there with um, several of the villagers. And they show us where we can camp. And then the one man and woman uh, that was heavily armed confronted me and wanted to know what we were doing, where we were going, and who we were. So I get our little letter out from the Colombian embassy and I show him that. And Cookie is fantastic. I have no idea what he said to them. He could have told them we could walk on water and they better watch out. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So they read the letter and they said, okay, just leave in the morning. So we thought, well, that's a good sign. And at this point, I'm still not totally convinced that they're gorillas. It's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm... trying to talk myself out of it. Maybe they're just police, you know, maybe that's what they are. Maybe right. Nobody's really asked the question. Yeah, no one's, yeah, show me your idea. Are you really a card-carrying gorilla? <laughs> show me your FARC registration yeah. card. And uh, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm denying it inside. And we were sitting there talking at night and a lot of villagers were around. They, you know, we kind of gather attention and questions are asked and we're doing our best to answer the questions that are being asked. And I look around and it's kind of dark in there and I could see the three um, gorilla guys, two gals and a woman standing on the outskirts of all this, listening to all the talk. And uh, finally, you know, it's, you know, eight o'clock or so and we're saying, okay, good night. We're going to bed. And Cookie is standing up at one end of the building or something, I forget what he was doing. And I walked over to him and very quietly, I just asked him, gorillas or police? Just just real quiet, hardly moved my lips. And all he did was take his hand and rub it over his mouth, indicating I better keep quiet. I said, okay. That kind of tells me everything right there. And uh, we were out of that place I think by 7.15 in the morning, fastest we'd ever packed and gotten out of a camp You're the whole time. to get out before yes. they, they wake up. They change up. their mind or whatever sure. they're thinking of doing. And it must have been a scary night for you all to sleep there. It was. And then from that point on, there was always talk of, well, there's more gorillas here and there's more gorillas there. And this village of Campamento is overrun with them. And this camp of Boca Chica is filled with them. And we actually avoided a couple of these villages because of these rumors. Where do you get the rumors? Um, other natives. Because the natives were, they didn't want them there any more than we want, you know, that, that anyone would want them in their house. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they were the ones that were telling us. And it was uh, the 31st of March, day after, two days after we saw them, three days after we saw the, that group of gorillas, um, 
we came to the Atrato River. The Salaki dumps into the uh, Atrato River and we were across the town from Rio Sucio. So we considered Rio Sucio the end of the Darien Gap crossing. So we had to cross that river to the village of Rio Sucio, which we did. And late, late afternoon, early evening, in fact, it was pretty dark when we got there. And the police, of course, came out and questioned us. And I don't know if we had any problems in the mountains. And that was the lead question, I'm sure. And well, no problems. We had problems with the Kunas, but virtually the gorillas gave us no trouble at all. <laughs> Not that we said that. And we said, no, the only problems we had were with the Kuna Indians in Panama. What's the real difficulty of the Darien Gap? Is, is it the terrain? Is it the vehicles? Is it... The people, remoteness, what is it? Logistics is a big problem because, you know, not only does the vehicle, if you're in a vehicle, it needs fuel. Um, the Jeep was hard because everything down there is outboards. So premix was really easy to get. Um, but just plain gasoline was a little bit more difficult and very expensive. And then once you've got it, you can't carry enough to supply yourself for, I mean, if we're winching, we're running the motor. So we may be running the motor for eight hours a day. We may make a few hundred yards. Um, so you're still running the engine that length of time. So you're still burning gas. Mm -hmm. So gasoline. And then, of course, if the trail is difficult, you got men working for you. So you've got to feed these men. Depending on how men, how many men you've got working, like I said, we had at one point up to fourteen men working for us. So now you got to feed fourteen men three meals a day, um, and that's a lot of food to carry. That's a lot of food, and I mean, most of the food and all that was carried when we were in the jeep. That that was on the jeep expedition for the Rocon. It was a lot easier. I mean, it, we had I think three or four at max, and that Lauren had fixed a cable to the front handlebars of the Rocon with a shackle in it and then we had a pulley and a rope and if there was any any idea that Lauren wasn't going to be able to ride the hill the pulley and the rope were put into play and it was just hauled up the hill with with manhandled you know mm. there was just no way that some of those hills you could walk that you could ride up like I said if they were totally clear that's one thing but on a whole you never cleared them that much so for the most part you're you're basically going straight through the jungle yeah that's it. Just um, cutting a swath and, and yep. getting the vehicle just, through. Right. Going village to village as much as possible because you can resupply at the villages. Um, usually. But even at that, you know, some of these villages were pretty small. And if you're going in there and wanting to buy, you know, 10 pounds of flour and five pounds of sugar. And so you pretty much can wipe out a village's supply in, in short order. Mm. Uh, there'd be, you know, on the Jeep one specifically, we, a couple of times we just call a halt and Lauren would go out for supplies. Are they happy to see you at the villages? Most of the times they were. Like I said, well, even the Kunas were happy. Um, it's just that <laughs> you just don't trust them. Mm. Where the Choco, I mean, they were, yeah. Yeah. They're, and the kids, of course, the kids are just like mag were, were magnets to us. I mean, they just wanted to see everything, touch everything uh, and stare. I mean, just watch. I, mean, I don't know what they're watching. I don't know how you can watch somebody sitting there reading a book, but they're sitting there watching you read a book. That completes the, the Darien Gap by Rokon. And that is a record. That's the, the first motorcycle to cross the Darien Gap. All on land. We all have to stipulate land. that because there's been others through, but not all on land. Helge came after you. Right. Uh, well, Culberson went through about that same time on the uh, 
that we were on the Jeep expedition. He finished in 87. Sure, but he, he uh, didn't strictly stick to land, as you said. He no, got on the no. And Helga didn't either. He ended up, of course, he ended up breaking his wrist or his arm early on and ended up going out by boat. Um, he took quite a fall, I guess, on his motorcycle. Um, then there was uh, J.D. Smith, I know, went through in, what, 2016, early 2016. Actually, my daughter helped him on that trip. Um, but they ended up with all sorts of problems because at this at this point in time, permission by the Centerfront, which is the, the border police there in Panama, they're, they're pretty strict now who's going and coming, at least it seems they are. And they were not going to give permission for JD to go through. They were on boat going up to Paya and everywhere said, you know, you need permission, you need permission and got to Paya and Centerfront said absolutely no way. And of course, you can't hire people from the village because they're right there at the the police station. So they had to turn around and go all the way back. And then in, uh, what, two years ago, a year ago, two years ago, eight, 2018, Wayne Mitchell and his group of former military, um, they were going from Prudhoe Bay to uh, Ushuaia. And they made it into the gap. And I think they were a day or so in when clutches started going. This I don't is think, the KLRs and, and get, with sidecars? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the sidecars didn't go through. Yeah. Um, but they uh, they went by boat up to Paya. And it was only um, a day or so when they started losing clutches and had to basically, I think one bike was left and the other three were, were manhandled and gotten down to the river on the Colombian side and then taken down downriver and gotten out that way and then had to have extensive work done on them once they got out. Lauren has been the the driving force with all these these expeditions by the sounds of, of what you're saying and it's been his um, ideas of uh, for adventure which you were quick to jump on board and say yeah I'm, I'm totally into that. Why aren't we hearing from Lauren? Well <laughs> With this disease, one of the things besides memory, I mean, his memory's still good. He's, he's, he gets a little more confused on what trip certain things happened. Like, you know, was it the 79 trip that that happened or was that the 77 Jeep trip that happened? What disease? That sort of thing. The Louis bodies with dementia. Okay. And uh, one of the other things that it, this affects is his voice. And his voice is almost a whisper now. He has a very, very, I mean, before you could have heard him across the football field. <laughs> he, he would have let you, he would have let you know. Uh, but now his his voice is virtually just a whisper. Um, so between the, the, the dementia that's affecting his memory and his voice, he just isn't comfortable about, first of all, being around people. And this is around people even if it is virtually here. Um, and he just, he wouldn't be comfortable. He would love to do it, mind you, but he just wouldn't be comfortable. What advice do you think that Lauren would have for anyone out there in life when it comes to adventures? One of the things he always points out when we give slide presentations, he loves to go to, when we give slide presentations on our trips, but one of his favorite things is to ask the people, what is it you can do entirely by yourself with absolutely no help from anybody else, no outside help, no outside resources, nothing. I mean, some of the kids would say, well, I can shoot a basket. Nah, somebody had to, you know, create the basket and give you a ball and teach you how to do it. You know, you, you just, yeah, it's not something you can do entirely by yourself. 
and everyone, no one has ever gotten it. And what it is, is to fail. You yourself have to say, I give up. I failed. That's the only thing you can do by yourself. So don't fail. How about you? What advice do you have? Um, I'd say get out there. You know, right now the world's in such a place, you, it's a little difficult, uh, which is a shame because there's so many beautiful places out there. I mean, not only in this country, but the entire world. I mean, we here in, in the United States specifically, I think, and this is a personal opinion, think that if you look at a map of the world, the United States is 99% of the land mass, and it isn't. There is a huge amount of land out there with a whole lot of people and a whole lot of cultures that are just fascinating. And going out there and seeing them, meeting them, talking with them, experiencing it, whether it's good, bad, or indifferent, it's all an experience and a learning adventure. And uh, that's my theory is just get out there and do it if you can. If it's something you want, dream it, do it. Patricia, wonderful story. It was just great to hear it. And I mean, it just sounds like such an adventurous life. Thank you very much for sharing it. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. That was Patty Upton from her home in Salmon, Idaho. Her and Lauren's website is outbackofbeyond.com. And we have that link, of course, in the show notes, along with some pictures from the Upton's Rocon Adventures. It's very cool. You should have a look. That's all on our website. Also in those show notes, we've got links to um, a few of the other episodes that we've done on the Darien Gap, if you'd like to hear more. It's, It's quite an interesting area. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer Elizabeth Martin who's sitting right over there and to you of course for listening thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support so if you're not supporting the show we need you to get behind it. We need you to drop by the website AdventureRiderRadio.com click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker sent at you for your pannier your toolbox, your garage door or maybe somebody else's garage door and, and anything $50 or more gets you a mention on our Raw show. And by the way, speaking of Raw, we do another show that comes out monthly called Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable talks about motorcycle uh, uh, travel and, uh, well, just all kinds of things. And I'm sure you're going to love it if you like Adventure Rider Radio. Drop by our website and uh, and look at the information there about Raw. But also you can get Adventure Rider Radio and Raw anywhere you find podcasts. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will talk to you next week.
Hi, I'm Helge Pedersen, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey! 